Wow. It's so great to be here uh, again this evening. Uh, man, I wish I could just somehow transport you all to Cyprus for just like a month or so. And I, I, I'm serious, we could turn the city upside down. There is thousands of young people in our city who have never heard the gospel, uh, are just in bondage, you know, and, and they've never seen what the life of Christ looks like in the life of other young people. If I could just do that, oh, or maybe just one of you even. <laughs> Keep it in mind. All right, uh, I'm not really going to be sharing about the ministry tonight. Uh, we're just going to get into the word. That's what the Lord put on my heart. So, um, you know, maybe in the, in the context of the message, I'll, I'll get an opportunity to share a little bit. But let's go ahead and open up our Bibles tonight to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're looking at verses 1 through 10. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Who needs a Bible? Got one over here. A couple people over here, one up in front. Man. Okay, is everybody there? Luke chapter 7. We're going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 10. We all ready? You with me? Now when he, that is Jesus, concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one of, for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returned to the house, sorry, and those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this evening in Jesus' name. Just so thankful, Lord, of the opportunity to worship you. So thankful, Lord, uh, just for the work of your spirit in the lives of everyone here tonight. And Lord, uh, as so many have come out, taking their time and... Uh, effort, Lord, to, to be here tonight. I know it's, it's because they hunger and thirst to hear from you. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit has to say to us, Lord. And teach us about the faith that makes you marvel. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so the context of our story is uh, you know, Jesus has just come off of uh, preaching what, by most of our 
uh, estimates is the, the greatest or most popular sermon that he ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you look at Matthew's version of the same uh, story in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, it says that as Jesus ended these sayings, that is the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to sit and hear Jesus teach, to hear the Son of God expound upon the scriptures. I mean, you and I, we count ourselves lucky if we sense, you know, some light stirring, you know, in, in the midst of a sermon or, you know, a pastor or leader teaching. But uh, to be able to sit and hear Jesus teach, it must have been absolutely phenomenal experience. And And it says, uh, according to verse 1 of Luke chapter 7, that when he had concluded all these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was Jesus' ministry base. It was kind of his uh, ministry center. It's where Peter, James, and John were from. It's where Jesus spent a lot of time teaching. A lot of his miracles took place there. He had a lot of close friends and disciples there. So he was, you know, returning to, you know, familiar ground, a place where, um, you know, he was uh, at home and uh, where amazing things had happened previously. We're told in verse two that a certain centurion, um, a certain centurion servant was, who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. Uh, we got to stop for a second and look at this guy, the centurion. Um, we have to look at it from the perspective of Jesus and from the perspective of Jesus' followers. First of all, this Roman centurion was a Gentile, okay? He was a non-Jew. And, uh, you know, back in those days, um, the Jews had a nice term that they had used for Gentiles. Um, they liked to call them dogs, you know, uh, they had this kind of sort of national identity crisis thing going on. And, and, and they looked at anyone that, you know, lived outside of, you know, Israel as, as being, you know, a, a dog. And in fact, for the typical Jewish male, they would wake up every morning and do so even now today and say this prayer. Blessed are you, Hashem, king of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile. Uh, that's some serious, you know, pride issues going on there, right? Well, these guys, you know, the, the Jews looked at Gentiles uh, with some degree of disdain or another. It, it varied from general inferiority uh, to, you know, more extreme forms where Gentiles were literally nothing more than fuel for the fires of hell. Right? And that was, you know, just part of who they were. It was their world view, right? And so not only was this Roman centurion a Gentile, but he was obviously a Roman. Now, Rome was occupying Israel at the time, right? They had their boot on the necks of the Jews, and the, the disdain among the Israelites was understandable. It was reputable. And, you know, for a Roman who was being, um, you know, called to duty in Israel, it was like, you know, getting the worst assignment you could possibly ask for. Nothing but, you know, headache and heartache and trouble and difficulty. You know, and uh, you've read about the 
zealots in the New Testament, these militants, uh, insurgents really, Jewish insurgents who would oh, you know, take any chance they could that to you know, get a shot at the Romans and let them know how they felt. So they didn't, you know, the Jews didn't look at Romans with uh, much sympathy. They didn't have any fuzzy feelings for them. If it wasn't bad enough that this guy was a Gentile and a Roman, he was also a centurion, an officer, right, in the Roman uh, military machine. And by today's standards, he would have been a low-ranking officer. Um, but centurions were a very important cog in the Roman war machine. And uh, some historians have called centurions the backbone of the Roman army. So these guys, you know, were, were men of, uh, you know, war. They were men of substance. And, and uh, you know, you didn't mess with them. Typically, they commanded as many as 100 uh, men or more. So keep this in mind as we look at this situation. The general attitude of the Jews towards a Roman centurion would have been, you know, really, really bad. And, and here we have this picture. Jesus is in Capernaum. And it says, And a certain centurion's servant was, who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Verse 4, And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he, he should do this was deserving. Interesting. For he loves our nation, even more interesting, and he has built us a synagogue. So right away we get this picture that this centurion was not, you know, the kind of guy that you would expect him to be. His attitude towards the Jews and toward Israel was uh, probably extremely unique from the average centurion. First of all, we see that he was compassionate. Uh, he, he had a servant, and, and he, he dearly loved this particular servant. Human trafficking was rampant in uh, you know, the Roman Empire. They say that up to half of um, uh, the Roman world was made up of slaves. Up to six million slaves existed in Rome at the tide of its you know, um, uh, history. And, you know, the value of life among slaves was pretty much deplorable, very much as it is still to this day, treated a uh, little more than property, right? Uh, disposed of once they were broken and used. You know, I live uh, where we live in Cyprus. Human trafficking is still, a, you know, a huge problem. Um, we see, we have people in our, our church that are treated, you know, no better than slaves often, you know, overworked, underpaid, abused, neglected, taken advantage of, uh, and that is in a, on a legal basis, not to mention all that's going on in the world today that's, you know, just off the charts, illegal and immoral. Well, this was a unique relationship between this Roman centurion and his slave, it had developed, obviously, over the course of time. This slave was, you know, looked like a, you know, a son or something to this Roman centurion. And we're told that when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent uh, representatives pleading with Jesus to come and to heal his servant. If you look at Matthew's version in chapter 8, verse 6, it says that his servant was lying at home paralyzed, and he was dreadfully Tormented. So this servant wasn't just uh, sick. He wasn't just you know ill. He was dreadfully tormented. He was racked with pain. We don't know exactly what the problem was, but it was breaking the heart of this Roman centurion. And 
we're told here by Luke that this Roman centurion sent elders of the Jews as representatives for himself to meet with Jesus. Interesting, because this tells us that, you know, in spite of the fact that this Roman centurion was part of this huge, you know, uh, the, the might and the resources of Rome, uh, you know, they, they couldn't help him when it came to his servant, his servant situation. There was nothing that Rome could do. It didn't matter whether, you know, you're talking about Caesar or, or a slave. No one had the power to affect, you know, the situation that this Roman centurion was, was dealing with right now. Uh, in relationship to his servant, except for one, except for Jesus. And so he sends elders of the Jews. Now, you might, you know, naturally ask the question, well, what are Jews, you know, elders of the Jews doing, you know, uh, the, you know doing the work of this Roman centurion going to Jesus? Well, we're told in these verses that according to them, these, these Jewish elders, that, that the Roman centurion was deserving of Jesus' attention. Now, that's an amazing attitude, considering the, the typical you know, um, line you know, uh, that the, the Jews would have had towards a Roman centurion. Uh, they believed that he, this guy was worthy of Jesus' time and attention. And the reason why they believed that is because he loved their nation, number one, which was, you know, clearly amazing for a centurion, you know, to, to have come to a place where in his heart and in his mind he, he loved Israel. He loved the Jews. Uh, on top of that, it says that he had built their synagogue. Now, it's fascinating. Today, if you were to go to Israel and go to the ruins of Capernaum, you would find a legacy to this centurion still there today. The ruins of uh, the, the, the synagogue in Capernaum is still there. And the foundation of those ruins uh, are believed to have been from the time that Jesus walked the earth. So this guy not only loved Israel, uh, but he built a synagogue there. And, and you think about that. I mean, that is a huge, investi- a huge investment. It's a long-term uh, you know, commitment. And uh, this guy did it in spite of all odds. Well, we get to verse six and we read, then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So clearly, Jesus' curiosity is piqued by this centurion's uh, you know, actions and, and attitude. And he follows the elders. He's on his way to the centurion's uh, house. Once again, Jesus, you know, just bulldozing his way through all the social norms as he, you know, did so beautifully during his lifetime. Uh, you know, unconcerned about his contact with the unclean Gentiles. Great uh, lesson for you and I today in overcoming those social norms that we so often find ourselves, uh, you know, stuck in, unwilling to push through. And as they're on their way to the Roman centurion's home, a second delegation comes and greets Jesus and communicates the message 
that simply says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. First thing we see there is the fact that this Roman centurion addresses Jesus as Lord. This isn't trifle. This isn't a mistake. There's something going on in this man's heart. And second of all, he says of himself, I am not worthy. He, he, you know, this is a Roman centurion. I mean, he walked around with, you know, some serious boots. I mean, he had leverage. He, you know, he, you know, as a Roman did whatever he wanted to do in Israel for the most part. And here he is, you know, demonstrating, you know, this great um, submissiveness. And he says, you know, he calls Jesus Lord and he says, you know, I am not worthy. I do not even think myself worthy to come to you. He wasn't being rude by not speaking to Jesus himself directly, but he actually felt like he wasn't worthy of Jesus's company, his, his, his you know, direct interaction. And so this is a genuine, you know, demonstration of, of humility on behalf of this Roman centurion. In spite of having, you know, all of that authority that comes with his rank, he still, you know, bowed himself, uh, in a sense, before Jesus. And he says something, he communicates something through these friends to Jesus that is very powerful. Listen to this. He says to Jesus, say the word. And my servant will be healed. Where did he get this confidence? Where did he get this unwavering faith that what Jesus said would come to pass? Where do we get it? You know, when was the last time you demonstrated this kind of confidence? When was the last time I demonstrated this kind of confidence? Lord, say the word and it'll be done. This guy understood that distance and circumstance was irrelevant. That Jesus could command the healing from wherever and whenever he wanted to. And it begs the question, where did he get this faith? Well, we get a little bit of insight in these verses here. The man explains. He says, I am also a man placed under authority Having soldiers under me, I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Well, this may appear to us as a purely logical line of thought, but trust me, it's way more. This is more like divine you know, revelation. This is more than just a logical conclusion that he came to. This is more along the lines of you know, what happened to Peter when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus said, Simon Barjona's flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. You know, this ability for this Roman to take his own personal experience as an officer in the Roman Empire and, and interpret that into the spiritual realm was nothing short of a divine revelation. He had seen the authority that Jesus had exercised. I have to believe that be, this man was based and located in Capernaum, the, the location where Jesus performed some of his most outstanding miracles. And I am guessing that he was an eyewitness to some of the things that Jesus had done. At the very least, he had heard himself the teaching and the authority by which Jesus uh, moved and operated. And, and as a result of these things, this Roman centurion was, abil- was able to compare his kingdom that he understood and moved and lived in with Jesus's kingdom. 
and, and the way he moved and operated within it. The earthly king that this centurion served, you know, served as a, a platform for him to understand the heavenly kingdom that Jesus was moving and operating in. And, you know, the centurion, as, uh, uh, as he was, was fixed, you know, firmly kind of in the middle ranks of the Roman, um, you know, hierarchy. He knew how to give orders, but he also knew how to receive them. And, and that experience lent itself to him getting a hold of these powerful spiritual realities that were taking place around the life of Jesus these principles translated into an unshakable confidence uh, you know, that Jesus was able to do whatever he commanded to be done. This guy understood that Jesus was the Caesar of heaven and more. And that her, his word was law, his word was final, and when he spoke, it was good as done. Thus the, the uh, admonition, uh, just say the word. Now listen, this is where it's all going to come home for us here. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and he turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returned to the house found the servant well who had been sick. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled. I suspect that there weren't a lot of things that made Jesus marvel. The word there in the Greek is thavmazo, and it means to wonder, to admire, uh, again, to marvel. And you don't find this phrase, you know, Jesus marveled very often. In fact, Luke only uses it one other time in his gospel. And it's also in the context of faith, but unfortunately, the wrong kind of faith. In Luke chapter 6, verse 6, it says that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. And so Jesus says, it says that he marveled at the centurion and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. This guy didn't have the spiritual heritage that the Jews following him had. They didn't have Moses. They didn't have the tabernacle. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the commandments. They didn't have the oracles, the word of God. They didn't have the priesthood or the sacrifices. I'm sorry, he didn't have any of these things, the priesthood or the sacrifices, any of the, the advantages, the spiritual benefits that the Jews had grown up under. This guy didn't even possess them. And uh, in spite of the, the Jews, you know, mountain of heritage and history and knowledge of God, Israel, their, their, the, Jesus' disciples' faith paled in comparison to this Roman centurion's. So much so that it made Jesus marvel. Now that was, that was a, you know, uh, I don't know if you're, you're reading it there, but this is a bit of a slap in the face to Jesus' followers. He's turning around to this crowd of, you know, full, pure-blooded Jews who've grown up under this incredible heritage of faith, and he says, this pagan unbeliever has more faith than the rest of you guys. Ouch, man. Painful, stinging 
implications in that statement. And when I read this story, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, it stopped me and, and made me ask the question, you know, I have a choice of how I'm going to make Jesus marvel. Am I going to make Jesus marvel because of my unbelief? Or am I going to make him marvel because of my faith? You know, I, I, I trust that most of us here tonight, you know, don't want to fall, follow in the footsteps of this group of Jewish followers who are getting schooled by this unbeliever, right? And having this, you know, strong rebuke from Jesus. But the reality is, is that you and I have grown up, most of us, in very much the same light as Jesus' followers, you know? We've grown up in a Christian country. Okay, I know that term can be used very loosely nowadays, but... Many of us have grown up, you know, with a, at least a one, you know, a grasp to one degree or another of the Christian faith. We've, we've grown up with biblical truths. We've grown up in a country, you know, where our constitution at least is framed by Christian beliefs. And we have more access to our spiritual heritage today than any generation that has preceded us. through technology and everything else we have, there is absolutely no reason why every single person in this room cannot have an exhaustive knowledge of the word of God, of our faith, the foundations of who we are and everything. And yet, unfortunately, we have to be honest and ask ourselves if, you know, what Jesus had to say to those followers then, he wouldn't say to us yet here today. Because very often we will go morning to night without stopping to think even once, you know, whether or not God is trying to do something in and through my life. You know, we'll go for days at a time, maybe weeks at a time, maybe years at a time without ever considering what God's purposes and plans are for my life. And we're just kind of, you know, on an a, um, autopilot. You know, God is often completely removed from, uh, you know, our family life, our, our jobs, you know, our communities. You know, we talk about wanting to transform our community, transform our country, but we haven't even transformed our, seen transformation in our own lives. As I'm challenged by this, I think of what Jesus, you know, asked his disciples in Luke 18, verse 8. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith? And I'm not trying to be, you know, heavy-handed here or anything like this, but, you know, these are real challenges that you and I face. You know, so, so what's the, you know, what do we do? We, we want to have the kind of faith that makes Jesus marvel. How do I get there? What does it take? Do we, you know, uh, get into a huddle and just start chanting, you know, we can do it, we can do it? You know, do we psych ourselves up into a frenzy? Is it, you know, finding the right model or method or, you know, program or something to, to, to you know, get that kind of faith that makes Jesus marvel? 
Unfortunately, it's way more simple than that. It's way more simple than that. As I was, you know, chewing on these things, the Lord led me to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. If you turn with me there, uh, it'll be worth your while, I believe. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Here's the Apostle Paul, this guy who was, grew up entrenched in Judaism. He knew what it was like to lead a legalistic religious life and what it looked like to f- be completely delivered and transformed by the indwelling presence of Christ. In verse, chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's read that again. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I believe that this verse gives us great insight into the centurion's success with Jesus. I believe this gives us insight insight into the faith, the kind of faith that makes Jesus marvel. And it is simply a faith that is submitted to the life and the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is a life, it is a faith, forgive me, that is submitted to the life and the lordship of Christ. Now, the difference between you and I and this Roman centurion is that we live on opposite sides of the resurrection. Okay, we live on opposite sides of the resurrection than this Roman centurion. The Roman centurion was submitted to the life of Christ from without. He saw Jesus in the flesh, bodily, physically, locally, and he, said, he, you know, he bowed his heart, bowed his life before him and said, whatever you say goes. But you and I, we do it on this side of the re- resurrection from within. Jesus, sorry about that. I keep getting these weather alerts on my phone. I've never had them before <laughs> until I came here. <laughs> my, yeah, anyway. So you see where the connection is here? He submitted himself completely to the life and the lordship of Christ outwardly. But you and I, on this side of the resurrection, Christ dwells within us. But it's still the same dynamic. We have to submit ourselves to the life and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is great News. We're, our job, the faith that makes Jesus marvel is to let Jesus simply live his life through us. Uh, this came, you know, with real impact. This recent, um, this last Christmas, we were celebrating Christmas, and one of our elders did a message on, uh, you know, the the incarnation, and he, you know, challenged the congregation with this question: Has, you know, okay, we're celebrating Christmas. That's great. He, you know, that happened thousands of years ago. But has Christ been born in you? 
And, and I, I really, you know, I'd heard it before, but it just really hit me with fresh impact. And I went and I was just chewing on this concept. Has Christ been born in you? And, and then it just, it just kind of, you know, unpacked itself from there. And, you know, not only has Christ been born in us, but he desires to live his life through us still to this very day. And the difference between us trying to live the Christian life in our own flesh and strength and him living the Christian life through us makes all the difference in the world. It is the difference between thriving as a Christian and striving as a Christian. You know, most of us have met that person, you know, who, who's try, who said, you know, oh man, you know, I tried Christianity, but, you know, it didn't work for me. Clearly, you know, their approach to Christianity was lacking this particular reality. Christ living his life in and through his people. Listen to this. There is only room for one Christian in your life. And it isn't you. There's only room for one Christian in your life. And it's Jesus. It's his life, his love, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his power, his ministry, his miracles in operation in and through our lives. Recently came across a book called The Mystery of Godliness by Major Ian Hunt. Listen to this. He says, Christ in us. This is the divine genius that saves a man from the futility of self-effort. Anybody been there? Futility of self-effort? Hallelujah. It relieves the Christian from the burden of trying to pull himself up by the bootstraps. If it were not for this divine provision, the call of Christ would be a source of utter frustration. Anybody this evening frustrated about your walk in Christ? Presenting the sorry spectacle of a sincere idealist constantly thwarted by his own inadequacy. Mm. There is nothing more frustrating and defeating than living out the Christian life in the flesh. Anybody who's tried to do it knows exactly what I'm talking about. Try to live a selfless, loving, generous, patient, honest, uh, reliable, forgiving, righteous, just, discerning, and immovable life without Jesus. And you will find out what frustration looks like very quickly. And, you know, it's like the difference between living in the, the wilderness and the promised land. You remember when Israel came out of Egypt? And were called to go and take the promised land, but because of unbelief, they just spent 40 years languishing in the desert. It's the same thing. But on the contrary, there is nothing more rewarding than seeing Jesus living through us. And as I look back over my life, I can tell you with absolute assurance that every significant thing that has taken place in my life as a, as a believer is the re- result, excuse me, of, Jesus, uh, of me allowing Jesus to live his life out through me. 
uh, of simply just saying, you know, Lord, I'm getting out of the way. It's all yours. Have your way. Do what you want. I'm going to share a quick story with you to hopefully kind of drive this point home. And, and part of the reason why I'm sharing this particular story is because Rob kind of made me promise I would. <laughs> and it's a, it's a fantastic story, and it actually ties uh, some very fresh, very amazing developments this, even today regarding this. When we were getting ready to leave for Cyprus, um, my daughter Emma was four, and my daughter Abigail was six. And um, at that point, my daughter Abigail, sorry, seven and five, wasn't it? Seven and five, right. Emma was five and Abby was seven. Now my daughter Abby had been dancing ballet for two years at that point. And now it may seem trivial to some, but for a seven-year-old little girl, you know, who was actually um, got a really strong foundation in ballet when we lived in Russia, uh, we moved back here to the States, and, you know, she showed great potential and everything, even at that age. And then we, did, you know, we knew we were leaving for Cyprus. And one of the things that we had to put on the altar, you know, when we made our move to Cyprus was Abby's Ballet. Because we didn't know if there was ballet in Cyprus. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, again, this may seem, you know, a, a bit trivial at the moment, but bear with me. Because this is a powerful demonstration of how God responds to our faith when we allow him live his life through us. We put it on the altar. Abby, seven years old, she consciously understood that when we moved to Cyprus, she didn't know if she was going to be able to dance anymore. And that's, you know, who she was. That was her identity as a seven-year-old. Well, we went, and uh, we found out there was a, um, a, a ballet, you know, um, studio there in the town we moved into in Paphos. Uh, about a year later, I mean, it was okay. It was, you know, they were able to kind of keep her up, you know, to standard, but she wasn't really fulfilled with it. A year later, um, an audition opened up for another, com- another school in the neighboring city. And the guy who was going to run that school was, um, you know, had traveled and was very experienced and, you know, uh, you know had a you know, a fantastic reputation as a ballet instructor. And so we took Abby to this, um, to this audition, and she danced before him. And, you know, uh, about a month passed, and we get a phone call from this guy, her teacher. And he says, I just want to let you know that Abby's been accepted into um, our program. And he's, he, he said, you know, Abby Maddox... Um, Maddox, that's a, you know, she's got good genes, right? And I, I'm kind of thinking, you know, well, what is he talking about? He goes, her grandfather, my dad, Matt Maddox, the, the jazz legend, yeah? And I said, yeah, how did, how did you know that? And he goes, well, you know, the, her teacher in Paphos told me. He goes, I want to tell you a story. Um, he goes, this is the guy, you know, who's just accepted her into his, his school, right? He goes, uh... 35 years ago, when I was a 17-year-old guy, this is the island of Cyprus, okay? Greeks men don't dance, okay? I'm just telling you, at least not ballet. So 35 years ago, it was even worse, okay? But he was determined to dance, and at 17 years old, 35 years ago, he traveled to London to start dancing. Now keep 
try and keep all the, the details in play. He travels to London, 17 years old, trying to find you know, an inroad, a break, you know, to get into the dance world. Somebody drags him to a, a school, a dance school, uh, where, he, where he's accepted by the instructor to uh, train. And he trains with this guy for free. The guy you know, trains him for free for a year. And at the end of that year, he auditioned for the Royal Ballet of England and got accepted and launched his career. And from there, he traveled all over the world as a choreographer to uh, Canada, Austin, uh, Texas. And then, uh, you know, 35 years later, he lands back in Cyprus and opens up this school. He goes, the guy who gave me my break was your father. Now think about this for a second. My father was a famous jazz dance pioneer. He was a contract dancer for MGM. I didn't know my dad at this point. Uh, he had left my mom when I was 35. Uh, I'm sorry. He had left my mom when I was five years old. Uh, for, for the most part, I knew nothing of him except that he was famous and that he had made a name for himself in the dance world. He had, when he left my mom, he had moved to the UK and opened up a school. So I'm on the phone with this guy, and he's going, I owe my career to your, grand, I mean, to your dad, and I want you to understand that your daughter is going to get the best training I can provide her. And we had, you remember, before we left for Cyprus, we had you know, explained, honey, this is just something we've got to leave with Jesus. you just got to trust him. And all of a sudden, we realize that you know, this huge 35-year cycle thing you know, God had been working on it the whole time. And if, you, if that doesn't blow your mind, this morning, while I'm in service, I get a phone call from my daughter, Abigail. 12 years. She's been dancing. And this morning, in the UK, she got accepted into a company for the first time. And, but you, you know, all that simply to say, you know, when you step out, I mean, I could give you a million different stories, but that one always seems to, you know, really blow people's minds, you know, when you step out and you allow Jesus to live his life through you, you know, he, he, he's got everything at his disposable at his disposal necessary to get you where he wants you to be and to do through your life what he wants to do. I, I'm, I have a feeling I'm probably getting pressed here for time. The whole reason that the Holy Spirit lives in yours and my life is to reproduce the life of Christ in us. It is to turn us into the aroma of Christ. It is to allow you and I to be extent, an extension of the life of Christ. I mean, that is what the day of Pentecost was all about. That's what the book of Acts is all about. It is the ongoing ministry of Jesus through the body of Christ. When we read that term, the body of Christ, we kind of look at it in allegorical, sort of mystical terms, but it's more literal than we imagine. 
You are the body of Christ. He wants to live his life through you in this world today. And when we allow that to happen, anything is possible. Again, Major Ian Hunt said, to be in Christ makes you fit for heaven, but for Christ to be in you makes you fit for earth. God wants us to look like Jesus. Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Galatians 5, 22, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, He wants us to look like Jesus. He wants us to act like Jesus. Light, salt, ambassadors, the aroma of Christ. He wants us to be his witnesses. He wants us to be pillars of the truth in the world in which we live. He wants us to experience signs and wonders. He wants us to enjoy the freedom that he has called us to. And this is for every single one of us here in this room this morning. This isn't for some sort of super saints, you know, religious elite. This is the normal Christian experience. At least it's supposed to be. That's what the plan was. Romans 8, 29, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The word image there is icon, representation. We are being conformed in the image of his son. Interestingly enough, it's the same word that's used in Colossians 1.15 where it says that Jesus was the image, the icon of the invisible God. And we all know that Jesus was so much the image of the invisible God that when Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus said, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so... If you follow that line of reasoning, it should go to say that those who have seen us have seen the Son. If we are the icons of Christ. So my prayer this evening as we get ready for communion is that in all of our hearts we have this burden to be those that would make Jesus marvel. Jesus said to his followers, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. Wouldn't it be awesome if he was able to say, I have not found such great faith, not even in T.O. (laughs) Of you. I have not found such great faith in the Caneo Valley. You know, this isn't fluff. You know, I'm not just saying this to be dramatic. This is reality. We can be the conduit of Christ's life. And it's so exciting to see what God is doing here in this fellowship. You know, there's an advantage to being away for so long and coming back and visiting only on occasion. It's kind of like when we come back, I can always tell how long we've been gone by the kids, right? You know, you come back. When I got home to the McCoy's house uh, last week, I couldn't believe Danny. You know, he was just like, he was as tall as I am. And uh, Elijah, Schwartz, and Michael. I was just like, man, these kids, they've grown so much. You know, but, the, you know, you parents, you know, day by day, you don't see it happening, right? Well, it's similar in the spiritual realm. 
you know, you guys don't see maybe what's happening here in this fellowship on a day-to-day, week-by-week basis, but, you know, I haven't been around for two and a half years, and, and I'm excited, you know, to see what God's doing here. You know, to see so many young people here tonight is fantastic. I mean, that, it is my, my heart's prayer to see this reproduced in Cyprus. There's so much more to do. We need to let Jesus live his life out through us. If we want to see the spiritual landscape here change, if we want to see the political landscape here change, if we want to see Cyprus change, it's only going to happen as we let Jesus live his life through us. So um, we're going to prepare for communion now. And this is a great opportunity, right? You know, to just to stop and reflect and say, God, you know, where am I at in all this? You know, do, how does my faith make you marvel? You know, Paul told uh, the Corinthians in 11.26, 1 Corinthians 11.26, he says, you know, whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You and I live between two unbelievable points in history. The crucifixion, resurrection of our Savior and his imminent return. And communion is a chance for us to stop and say, Lord, how am I living in light of these amazing truths? Lord, how, in what way is my faith making you marvel? I pray that as the worship team leads us in worship and you come forward and partake of the bread and the cup that the Lord will meet you and minister his grace to you tonight. Thank you so much. God bless you. Father, we thank you for your word. We just thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. And God, we just ask that, um, Lord, as we come to the table for communion, God, that you would uh, prepare our hearts Lord, that we would be transparent before you as we consider, Lord, to what degree we're allowing you to live your life through us. Father, we ask that um, your spirit would just prevail upon us and bring us to a new depth, a new surrender, new abandonment. Lord, that we could see Thousand Oaks, that we could see Caneo Valley, we could see Cyprus, we could see wherever we call home transform, Lord. We want our marriages to change. We want our workplaces to change, God. We want the broken people that populate our lives to know the hope and the life that we have in you. So, Father, be glorified tonight as we come before you and again consider the price of our redemption. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.